gather here once again together um, for those of us that are online, Lord, that, that we have the technology to be able to do that as well, Lord. Uh, I think the past couple of weeks have just showed us how much we've, we've missed having this, Lord. So having this fellowship together, we are we're truly grateful for it. I pray as Pastor Ben brings the word to us this morning, Lord, that you would allow it to encourage our hearts, Lord, that you would renew in our hearts that blessed assurance of, of uh, what you've done for us and um, what you have for us moving forward, Lord, and that you would just show us how to better live our lives for you this week, Lord, and um, just going forward in the, in the coming year, Lord, because we know it's going to be uh, an interesting one for sure, Lord, but to show us how we can better live our lives for you to glorify you and ultimately uh, rejoin you one day in heaven. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're coming close to the end of our study in 1 Peter. Hopefully you can say amen to that. Not necessarily that it's the end, but it's hopefully it's been a blessing. Lighthouse, we are committed to expositional preaching, which means we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and we take a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse. We seek to draw out the meaning of the text and ask for God's grace to understand it and then to apply it by faith. And I'm always amazed how God directs through expositional preaching. Our next section is chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 which is a summary on, on Peter's view of suffering. In fact, if you look at verse 11, it seems like Peter is about to end his book with this doxology, and then he reviews, in the next eight verses, uh, his, really his teaching on suffering from the entire book. It's kind of like a summary. And he's doing this because, I think, number one, he wants to, again, encourage the church that's going through suffering, but number two, most importantly, he wants them to trust the Lord during suffering. In fact, look at verse 19. He sums up this summary by saying in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter wanted the church to trust God during suffering and one way we're going to see that he's doing that is he going to, he's going to teach them what is normal for a Christian. I mean, what should we expect as the normal Christian life? When I say normal, what do you think about? You know, you hear people say, I can't wait till our lives get back to normal. What does that even mean? <laughs> what is normal anymore? In general, norm, normal, we, by that we mean that your life adheres to some kind of expected routine. Like there was a routine in 2019. <laughs> we want to get back to that routine. Usually, though, normal means that we expect to be in the routine that centers around what we think life should be like and how we view life, or at least how we view life should be like. So, so for me, let me tell you my normal week, okay? Here's my normal week. Everything goes my way. My wife serves me perfectly. My children are perfect angels. Everyone thinks my ideas are the best ideas. My body is healthy. Every driver is considerate of me on the road. The government officials in office are the ones I voted for, and they do what I think should be voted on or should be put in place as policy. My stomach is full. My mind is entertained. And my body gets a full eight hours of sleep without the dog bothering me. That is normal. And therefore, I expect my life will go like that. Now, just by your laughs, you can tell that the, how ridiculous that is. But also, isn't that true? We think that way many times, don't we? It's actually an unbiblical way to think, to, to consider that life should go how I think it should go. And if it doesn't, therefore, I can respond in a sinful way or in a frustrating way. But actually, God wants us to understand what he expects as normal. So what is normal for the Christian? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this morning, actually, and next week. We're going to look at these, these verses here, and we're going to see there's going to be six commands we're going through, these eight verses. But we kind of summed it 
back to, I don't know if I have this up here or not. Actually, here we go. We kind of summed it up in five different descriptions of the normal Christian life. This morning, we're just going to go through the first two. Christian, the Christian normal is we expect fiery trials, and also the Christian normal is we find joy in Jesus Christ. So let's look at our text this morning first, and let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. Would you follow along as I read the Holy Scriptures? Verse 12, beloved, do not think it, sorry, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests Upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not, who do not obey the gospel of God? And what if the righteous is scarcely saved? What will the what would become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father, we pray for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We as Lighthouse Bible Church believe that what's happening here is we are actually speaking on your behalf. So this is a very solemn time a time for us to listen to you and to submit to whatever you say in the word of God. So I pray you'll give me wisdom and I pray that you'll give us all a humble heart, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. After World War II, there was a young teenage boy named Joseph Son who lived in Romania. He grew up in a Baptist home in Romania as a child. He um, experienced the Germans coming into his homeland. Then after the Germans were there, soon the Russians came and quote-unquote delivered them, did deliver them from the Germans, but with the Russians came a lust for socialism and the evil of communism. In the late 1940s, the question every Romanian was asking is, what is going to be the normal for our country? And soon they found out the normal was a socialist government that came to power. And so Yosef sat in his high school class in 1948. He sat in his class and he had a teacher get up and announce and say that within one generation, all of you will believe what the government teaches you and you will not believe in God. And it was somewhat prophetic, actually, because pretty much that's uh, not everyone, but generally the society followed that. And all around them for Christians was a new normal. The government nationalized everything in the name of fairness. Wealth was redistributed. Restrictions were put in place. The country eventually turned into an authoritarian um, dictatorship, um, communist country. They were plunged into poverty and full atheism. And this young man grew up. At first, he followed the communist state for about 12 years. And then he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal savior and became a pastor. In fact, I got a little video. It's about 30 seconds long. I want to show you this. Let's give you a little context. He was exiled to America in the 1980s, and we go around and speak to churches. And he's still alive today. He lives up, I think, in Washington State. And he, uh, Joseph, um, it's T. Son, but I think it's pronounced Son. And uh, let me just play this for you, and um, you can hear a little bit of his story. Because of the so different uh, situation. You see, with us... It was brutal persecution that made everybody submit, everybody uh, acquiesce, everybody accept all the restrictions, everybody keep quiet and try to live their faith in themselves, whatever the restrictions out and whatever the compromises one uh, was asked to make in order to stay alive. 
And I came to see one day that the greatest sin was the desire to survive. When I wrote the first paper on this issue in 1973, I mentioned that our greatest mistake was the desire to survive. Because, I said, sometimes the Lord doesn't expect you to survive. Sometimes the Lord wants you to stand up and witness and die. And uh, so out of our desire to stay alive, we made all the compromises. And I came to see that the real issue was, am I ready to die for what I believe in? Do I love the Lord Jesus so much that I literally accept to die for him? This pastor, he ended up experiencing, when he was under the communist rule there, much suffering. And he has some very interesting talks in uh, literature you can read. There's different times in our life, though, that you consider what is the normal for us. For those believers at that time during under communist uh, Romania, they had to consider what was the normal for them. I can remember when I uh, first went to college, my parents dropped me off. I sat in the bed in my dorm, and my parents drove away, and I realized there's a new normal. <laughs> I have to take care of myself. I remember getting married and realizing I can't just go wherever I want to, and I can't just throw my clothes in the ground. It's a new normal. I have someone I'm living with that I'm supposed to live and serve. The first step, really, to living in a new normal is to understand the reality you're living in and then to trust God's sovereignty, that he placed you there, he has a purpose for you in it, and he's working in and through you. As a country, I think we're entering into a new normal in our country. I know many of you, I've talked to many of you and experienced the, the sorrow of some of the, what, what we're going through. I see it as one of my goals as your pastor to really shepherd you through this time and through whatever God has for our country and really to prepare you, to prepare our kids and our grandkids for what we might, might be a new normal for us in our country. And so what is the normal for a Christian? What does God's word say? Well, look at verse 12. First, a Christian normal, the Christian normal, we expect fiery trials. It says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So verse 12, the verb there, he says, is to not be surprised. In the original language, that's a present tense imperative. This reflects then that the believers were struggling with this ongoing shock uh, that something was happening terrible around them. I mean, when you're a Christian, you, you think, well, I'm a child of God. Like, he's the God, powerful, almighty, like, shouldn't my problems go away? Right? And sometimes we think that way, don't we? We think, we think like that. Like, why, why is this person saying that to me? Why is this happening in my life? Why doesn't God do this instead? And we can be surprised at problems in our life and in our world. You can see this further highlighted. Look in verse 12, at the very end of the verse. He says, don't be surprised as if some strange thing were happening to you. And the word strange there is... In the noun, it's used of a stranger, someone who comes into your house that's not expected. Uh, a couple years ago, when we were in South Carolina, our, one of our neighbors came over and banged on our front door. We were all having a sweet little time with our kids, you know, we we're having fun in our house. It was, at, it was in the evening, and, and she bangs on our door, and she comes in, and she says, my husband um, just got an accident, and so her girls come over, and we tried to minister to their family, and it was a stranger, it was not expected. That's kind of the idea here. Sometimes you have difficulties and trials and they come knocking on your door. It's like a stranger coming up to you and you don't expect it to enter into your life. But we shouldn't be surprised that's going to happen. Well, why is that? Well, there's two main reasons. First of all, we live in a sin-cursed world, don't we? We are sinners, if you're a believer, saved by the grace of God. But we live in a world of sinners. And our world is cursed because of sin. So we shouldn't be surprised if there's suffering in our world because we live in a sin-cursed world. And second, in our text here, he says one of the reasons is because God is sovereignly using the suffering to refine and test you to fulfill his purposes. He is sovereignly using the suffering to refine and test you to fulfill his purposes. Look at verse 12. He says, beloved, this is speaking to God's beloved children, that's us, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to 
test you. The reason we are not to be surprised at fiery trials is because God has put these in our life to test our faith. And the picture here is of a furnace that refines metal. The fire in a furnace is not there to harm the metal, is it? It's there to strengthen it, to make it better, to make it more glorious. In fact, flip over to chapter 1. If you can remember, this was back in the spring. We talked about this, and Peter began teaching on suffering in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Peter wrote, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, he taught, God puts these fires in our life. He tests and refines our faith. I love how Paul speaks of this. He went through a fire. We really don't know exactly what this fire was like, but something to the point where he thought he was going to die. He said that, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's a fire sent by the Lord. Now, do you feel like that sometimes? Like, I'm so utterly burdened, I'm despairing of life itself. Hey, good news for you. Paul felt the same way. Why, though? Why is that fire? Why was that fire put in the Apostle Paul's life? And he says, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It was to refine Paul's faith. What's the most valuable thing in your life? I mean, think about it. What is the most valuable thing in your life? If you're a Christian, it should be God and your relationship with him. The most important thing in our life is the Lord and our relationship with him, right? Governments come and governments go. Money is earned, money is lost. Possessions are here, and then they go. All things that we see, all material things around us, will soon disappear at our death. And I think we should definitely steward those things, so let's not be flippant about that. Let's steward what God has given to us, and if God allows us to invest in something and steward it, let's do that. But keep it in perspective. Those things won't last. But will, what will remain is what is eternal. And what God is doing with fiery trials, he's, he's putting your heart under the fire of his testing to burn away all that you're trusting and all that you love so you will trust him more and love him more. On my finger here, I have a ring that reminds, a golden gold ring, I don't know how pure it is, but a gold ring that reminds me of my covenant with my wife. This gold ring had a lot of hammering put to it at some point. The, the, the gold of this ring had, was put through the fire a number of times. This gold ring came to this, to be like this, because a goldsmith put it through a lot of testing. And you don't get gold like this, or at least like it was 16 years ago. It's a little beat up now, but you don't get gold like this without fire. God is like that goldsmith. He applies the fire of trials to our hearts so that, so that we can shed our sin and our self-dependence, we can trust him more, and we can look more like Jesus Christ. If you value Jesus Christ, if you're a believer and you really value Jesus Christ in your relationship with him, then you will accept, and this is a hard one, we will accept the difficulties and suffering in our life as normal, and actually God's loving process to draw us to himself. If you don't value Jesus Christ and your relationship with him, then you will not accept it as normal. You will bristle at it because you love the things of this world more. And you might say, Pastor Ben, how do you know this is fire from God, his refining? How do you know this is from God? Well, I think it's what the context leads us to. Look at verse 19. There's a number of times in 1 Peter where Peter reminds us of this, but verse 19 is probably one of the clearest he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
So the will of God in verse 19 is related to the suffering I am experiencing. In other words, it is God's will sometimes as Christians to allow us to go into the darkness of suffering. It's actually his gift to us so he can draw us to himself. He can make us more like Christ. And again, sometimes people look at this kind of stuff and they go, well, does that mean God does bad things? Does that mean God is evil? And the answer is absolutely not. God is not evil. But he is so powerful and so loving that he can take the curse of sin in this world and he can turn it around into good. I mean, that's Jesus Christ, right? I mean, Jesus had the curse of sin put upon him. Evil people came against him and he died for our redemption. Consider Joseph was kidnapped. Joseph in, uh, in Genesis was kidnapped, lied about, thrown in prison. Yet God put him to second in command in Egypt and God used him. In fact, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but... God meant it for good. And sometimes God allows the, the darkness to fall around us, and, and sometimes even in our own heart, so the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel can shine forth through us. And again, I don't want to keep going back to this, but I think this is the context our, that we are, many of us are in, and that is our country is in a dark place spiritually, isn't it? And it's sliding quickly, quickly into a darker place. I think as a church, have we considered that maybe God is using this in our life and in our church for good, for his glory? Maybe this is the time for the church to shine for Christ. Maybe this is a time when people will see the light of the glorious gospel. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. You can kind of see this. This is Peter, Peter brings this out in chapter 2, verse 12. He encourages the church. He says, listen, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that, are the, that is the unbelievers. Keep it honorable. And let me just throw this in there. Like, don't go storm the capital, okay? Keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may actually see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So what kind of fiery trials were these believers going through? We'll go back to chapter 4. He makes it pretty clear in this text that it actually relates to their good works and to their relationship with Christ. Look at verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. He says, you share in Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian. So, so they were suffering at the hands of people in their society who despise their relationship with Jesus Christ and what came forth from that. In fact, look up in chapter 4, verse 4. You can see that the society is surprised. It says, with respect to this, they, that's the world around you, are surprised when you don't join them. In other words, when you as a Christian live a life of sexual purity, when you hold to the gospel and trust it, when you don't affirm the society's immoral self-idolatry, they're surprised that you don't follow them, and therefore they reject you. What's interesting, actually, also, when we think about suffering and persecution, we, all, we automatically go to, like, you know, people being beaten for Christ or thrown in prison or martyrdom. But what's interesting is you study First Peter, the suffering of these believers in this church were mostly social and personal. In other words, most of the suffering they faced was, was suffering that was at the, the mouths of people or the re personal rejection of people. They were isolated from society. They were, they were made fun of. They were ridiculed for the name of, in the name of Christ. In 1948, as I said, the country of Romania was turned into a communist country. And I kind of want to take Joseph's story, Joseph's son's story, and kind of follow it a little bit. And he wrote a couple, he's written a couple books, and they're really interesting to read. But they're, they're based on suffering. One is, called, one is called The Theology of Martyrdom. Very interesting to read. As I kind of read through his story and his life, honestly, I thought this is a really good thing for us to think about as a church. If you're a young person in here, like your future in this country, this is a, probably a good thing to you th for you to think about. Study the churches of the 20th century that went through what we're probably starting to go into as a country. And he was, a, again, like I said, he was a pastor in Romania. He was arrested many times, imprisoned for being a pastor and being, preaching the gospel. He was beaten a number of times in intense interrogation. 
he wrote this. He said that the communist attack in Romania was threefold. It was directed at individuals, churches, and pastors. And the primary attack against individuals was not to throw them in prison. So like, again, sometimes we go to that. It's like, oh, we're, I'm going to go to prison. In fact, I talked to someone a couple months ago that was like, I'm going to go to Grace Community when the, the police are going to storm there. They're going to take me to jail. That's just typically not how persecution is in the world, actually, even in communist countries. He's like, they're not, they're not typically thrown in jail. Actually, here's what it is. Here's the plan. Discriminate, demote, keep them at the lowest place. Continually tell them how they're not wanted in society, how they're only tolerated. Society is encouraged to cause trouble, harass them. The main threat is constant harassment. And he said his, his church, and they basically were an underground church, his church faces constant harassment. And he said the main question people asked was why? Why, pastor? Why do I have to go through this suffering? Why does God allow this? Why does he not deliver us? Especially when you heard about America and how free we were, you know. That's really even harder. And he says, personally, this is him speaking. He says, personally, I have a problem with certain preachers who say, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. You know, like America. The American gospel, I should say. I have a problem with certain preachers who say that. I do not find that message in the New Testament. I find the way of Christ is hard. Stop and ponder. It's a narrow gate. It's a cross that means dying. Make up your mind and then follow Christ. He tells one story of a, of a man in his church who, um, well actually a man who was a owner of a, or the manager of a large factory. Thousands and thousands of people in this factory. He oversaw all these people and this man came to Christ. Then he started going to their church and being discipled by them. And, uh, and then one day the pa- he came to the pastor and said, this week, this past week they found out that I'm a Christian. This next week they're going to make me stand in front of the entire company entire factory, and they're going to make fun of me because I'm a Christian. They'll probably demote me to the lowest position in the factory. If I even have a job, that's probably the job I'm going to have. And this guy was really down. Like, I'm losing everything, you know. He says, what do I say? When, they, when I stand up in front of them, what do I say? They're going to give me an opportunity to say something. What do I say? And he said, oh, don't defend. This pastor said, don't defend yourself. This is your great chance. Tell them who Jesus is, what he did for you. In a, in a humble way, tell them who he is to you. And instantly his face shone, and then the next week he came back to his pastor and he said, you wouldn't believe it. I stood up in front of everyone, and I shared my faith with them, and, if, and he did it in such a very humble, meek way. It wasn't like in their face, but he was very meek about it. He said, you wouldn't believe it. I can't go anywhere without people pulling me and saying, hey, where's your church at? Can I go worship with you? Can you read the Bible with me? He says, as a result of that man's testimony, Hundreds of people came to Jesus Christ. And my point of that is that God uses suffering in our lives, in the church of Jesus Christ, in our world, for our good, for his glory. Christian normal next is we find joy in Jesus. Look at verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So verse 12, he, he gives the negative command. Don't be surprised. And then in verse 13, he gives the positive. Therefore, rejoice. Rejoice. Both these are present tense. Again, present tense imperative. So it's, it's an ongoing, daily, constant thing that should be happening in your life. You should be, have this ongoing joy in the Lord. Ongoing. Don't, don't be surprised each day. Don't be shocked by trials. But Keep finding your joy in Jesus Christ. So, so once, you, once you understand, we live in a sin-cursed world. God has put me in this context so that he can uh, do this for my good and for his glory. Then what do I do next? Well, I think he gives the answer here. Rejoice. Rejoice. And you say, well, what does that even mean? Like, how do you do that? How do you do that in a trial? How do you do that in a difficulty? What do you rejoice in? Well, let me just say this. The joy is not in pain. Sometimes Christians talk like that. It's like, oh, I'm so glad I got to suffer. Come on, not really. (laughs) Nobody enjoys pain, and you shouldn't either. That's not the Christian life. The joy is found in your relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, you can see that in verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar to the degree as you share Christ's suffering. Put a quote up here of this pastor, this 
pastor in Romania, he said this, the union with Christ, this relationship with Christ, is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It's not my suffering. I only had the honor to share in his suffering. So he viewed his suffering for Christ as a way to fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that's the joy you see of verse 13. The joy we have in suffering for Christ is the joy of being able to fellowship with him when we're in that pain. It's, it's the joy that even though our hearts are heavy and our bodies experience pain, the pain reminds us of the suffering that Christ experienced. And our pain prods us to trust him more and to love him more. In fact, look at verse 13. See where he says the word share. If you have an NASB or ESV, the translation is share. If you have a New King James, it's partake. This is the word, Greek word in the, in the verb form koinonio, which in the, you might recognize the noun form koinonia. It's the word fellowship or it's the word partner with. It's the idea that you, you fellowship or partner with Jesus Christ. It speaks of your relationship with him. This word tells us that the joy in our suffering is, is a fellowship, a, a partnership we have with Christ. In fact, Philippians chapter 3, Peter uses, or not Peter, but Paul uses this word. And he says, that I may know him. This is speaking of his relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection. And may share or partner or fellowship with him in sufferings, in his sufferings. So what Peter, and First Peter, and Paul, and other epistles he wrote, what they taught was that there's a special fellowship there's a special enjoyment that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ when we go through difficult times. John Piper wrote this. He says this. It's not John Piper. There it is. He says, I have never heard anyone say, the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say, every significant advance I've ever made and grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with him has come through suffering. And it's in that fellowship that we rejoice. The imperative here, the command here to rejoice is a command then to continue to fellowship with Jesus Christ through your suffering. John MacArthur writes this. I just give these names and these quotes because I think they're so good, I couldn't say it better myself. I'm not usually a quoting kind of person. This might be the first time I've quoted it actually in a while, so maybe two years, who knows. He says, joy is the deep down confidence that God is in control of your life. That doesn't change. Whenever I encounter a Christian who has lost his joy, I don't want to talk about his circumstances. I want to talk about his relationship with the Lord. Why? Because joy is generated from a recognition of what Christ has done in a person's life. And so joy comes from this relationship we have with Jesus Christ. On October 4th, 1974, this pastor, Joseph, son, and his wife were at their home. It was six o'clock in the morning, and they got a pound on the door. And it was eight secret police officers from communist Romania that came for a search warrant. They came, were looking for propaganda that were, was going against their idea of what socialism should be and communism. So he's a pastor. He has a bunch of books. Obviously, he's probably got something in there that's against communism and socialism, right? So they came in to confiscate all of it and uh, just started ripping his house apart. He had all these books on his shelves. They were all um, smuggled in, so they were very precious to him. He's a pastor, so he loved his books too. So that's another reason why they were precious to him. So he was really down. They were going to take away all his books. And they made him go to the shelf and take off the books one at a time. He had to sign his name in the front that he owned the book, you know. So he's taking off these books, signing it, put it in a box, and they were taking him out to a car, take him away, and to never see them again. And he's getting sad, he's down, he's kind of mad. They're like violating his space, you know, his house. His wife is obviously scared, and so this is, this is very traumatic for his family. Then he pulls off a book to sign the front of it, and it's called Joy Unspeakable and Full of Glory, subtitled, Is It Yours Now? And he looked at that, and he goes, no, <laughs> it's not. He signed it, put it in the box, and then he prayed. He said, Lord, I want to have joy in you right now. Give me the joy of the Lord. 
And so he stood up and he said, Sweetie, we have eight guests here. Let's make coffee for them. Let's put a coffee pot for them. Let's make some cakes for them. Hey, you guys are our guests. Sit down. I'm going to sign these books. And his countenance changed. They were shocked. They're like, what happened to this guy? I mean, maybe seven o'clock, his coffee just, you know, came in or something. But he really started being kind to them. Well, that week they interrogated him. I mean, they yelled at him, insulted him, lied about him. Next couple weeks they did that. They beat him. So that happened Monday through Friday. He would basically go through interrogation all week long. And then on Sundays he would come and preach. (laughs) And so what do you think his topic was for he was preaching on? What do you think God had led their church to preach on? Joy. (laughs) Tithing. Nope. (laughs) Joy. His, his, (laughs) not that, yes. His, His theme was the joy of the Lord is our strength. He had one guy that came because he heard this guy's being interrogated all week, beaten, and then he was coming on Sundays and preaches. And so this guy sat in the back and he was waiting to see this pastor all beat up and despondent get up there and bemoaning what's happening in the government. And this pastor had joy and he preached on joy and he was shocked to see that. And he came and talked to the pastor afterwards and he said, I just cannot believe not just what you're saying, but actually I see it in your face. You have joy. The joy for Joseph was found in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And the same is true in our life. Our joy, church, our joy is not found in a perfect government. Our joy is not found in everyone liking us or getting my way or no pain. And honestly, after having COVID, it's kind of like, I I don't know about you if you've had it, but it's like you have this time where you get really low and it's like, I'm kind of sick of this right now. And some of you might be at home and have it. (laughs) Like, I'm kind of done with this, right? And it's not found in the pain. But we have to keep pressing forward in our relationship with the Lord and find our joy in him. And that's why I think, friends, I think it's so important that what we're doing right now, we continue to do. We have to find our joy in Jesus. And we can't just find it at home, sit in our closet by ourselves. Like that's a good place to find it in the word of God, on your knees in prayer. We also have to gather. We have to sing out for Christ. We have to sing in joy to him. We have to gather in joy in the name of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you, if you're at home and you're not sick, will you come and join us? We're having a lot of fun here. Okay, next. Joy is found in our fellowship with Jesus, and joy is found in our future with Jesus Christ. Look, out, look down in verse 13. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that, and here he gives a purpose clause. So here's the purpose of rejoicing in Christ now. So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, what does that mean? Good question when you're studying the Bible to ask that question. What does that mean? How does my rejoicing now relate to my joy in the future at Christ's coming? Well, what this is teaching is our present joy in Christ now demonstrates that we are one, we are one of those ones who will rejoice in Christ at his coming. So our present joy in Christ now demonstrates that we are one who will experience joy in Jesus when he comes. In other words, one purpose of rejoicing in Christ is to confirm that you are a believer in Jesus. Christians are ones who are filled with the joy of the Lord. And trials might come and they might try to dampen it. They might try to steal your joy. But for the Christian, his or her joy should actually increase in trials because the trial is like fuel on the fire of our heart to cause us to have greater faith in him. And the more we lean into Christ in our trials and our difficulties, the more we enjoy Christ and the more we long to enjoy his presence when he returns. Jesus taught on this in a little different way than, oh, I guess I don't have it up here. Uh, I'll just read it to you. A little different way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, People will utter all kinds of evil things against you. But he says in Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets before you. And what Jesus was saying there is, listen, you should have joy now, looking forward to the joy to come. But what's interesting, if you look at this text in 1 Peter, he's actually saying something a little different. Peter is teaching something a little different here. Peter is saying, he taught that you rejoice now for the purpose of receiving future joy. Now, you might look at that and you may be like, what does that mean, Pastor Ben? I don't, I'm not really getting that. Because honestly, I had to wrestle through that myself. I think he, what he's doing here is he's giving encouragement for the church and a warning for the church. Here's the encouragement. 
There is joy to come for the believer who enjoys Jesus Christ now. Like if you're, if you're fighting hard to find your joy in Jesus, listen, there's way more joy to come, so be encouraged. But the warning is this. If you claim to be a Christian and yet your life is joyless, then you need to consider this. Why do you think you will enjoy Christ when he comes if you don't enjoy him now? I mean, that's, look, look at the text. That's what he's teaching. He says, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So those who are truly saved are those who find their joy in the Lord. And this is the perseverance of the saints. We keep finding our joy in the Lord. And if you're during a trial, if you're in a difficult time, and you look to other things for joy, and that's the pattern of your life, like you're always going to those things for joy, and you don't go to the Lord for joy, then think you have to ask yourself the question, are you truly a believer? Do you really rest your joy in the Lord? My father used to say this when I was growing up, if it doesn't quack like a duck, walk like a duck, look like a duck, it's probably not what? Probably not a duck. I think that's what he's saying here, minus the duck right? Our hearts can be self-deceived, and we can think to ourselves, well, I think this is true just because I think this. But the question we have to ask is, what does the Bible actually say? I mean, let me put it another way. Let's say that your birthday's coming up in a couple months, and so I tell you, man, I'm going to give you a great birthday. Let's say you love chocolate. So I say, I'm going to make your favorite chocolate cake. I'm going to give you one of those big old Hershey bars, you know what I'm talking about? I'm going to get some chocolate ice cream with the chocolate chunks. You love chocolate so much, you're like, this is going to be great. Like, I love chocolate, right? So you might eat chocolate now, but you're looking forward to that great big chocolate day on your birthday, right? But if you don't like chocolate, if you kind of just, it's distasteful to you, or maybe you even hate it, right? And I say, hey, I'm going to give you all this chocolate on your birthday. Are you going to look forward to it? You're not. In, in other words... Those who enjoy chocolate now will enjoy chocolate on their birthday, if that's their gift. But those who don't enjoy it now, they won't enjoy it on their birthday. And that's kind of what he's saying here. In the same way, why would a person think that if they don't enjoy Jesus Christ now, that they'll enjoy him on the day when he comes? If you don't enjoy Jesus in your life now, there's no reason to think when Jesus comes back, suddenly you're going to enjoy him. And so what, what does this mean? You say, well, I struggle, Pastor Ben, as a Christian. I'm down a lot. Hey, you're allowed to do that as a Christian. That's okay. But you can't stay there, okay? You've got to keep fighting. In fact, here, here's what I would probably say. I'd probably say it like this. As a Christian, we might struggle with, with depression and getting down and feeling sad, but we don't surrender to it. We fight back, finding our joy and our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to Church, we have to fight sin. We have to fight for our joy. And that's what you see in the New Testament. I mean, consider David. You read through the Psalms, what you see. The very beginning of the Psalms, he's like, I'm so down. Like Psalm 4. David says, I cry out to you, Lord. I'm in distress. How long will my honor be put to shame? It's like, I'm so down. And then at the end of the Psalm, he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, the world, when they have problems, they go to grain and wine, or they go to alcohol, right? They're, they're trying to go to that to find their joy. But I feel pretty down. I go to you, and actually, I have way more joy than they can ever hope to have. David fought. The Psalms basically are David fighting for his joy by looking to Christ, looking to the Lord. Paul did the same thing. He's in a pit. He's in jail, and he writes Philippians. And you, he says in there, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How did, how did he get there? <laughs> I mean, he had to fight for that. It's not like he's in that prison going, man, this is such a wonderful experience in my life, right? He had to fight and say, Lord, I'm here to enjoy you. In church, you can enjoy the Lord too. Or consider someone like Judas Iscariot. His joy was in what Jesus could do for him, right? When things were going easy and his walk, his ministry with Jesus, then what Jesus gave him, that's what he had joy in. But he really never truly found joy in his relationship with Jesus, did he? In fact, it's proved at the very end when things really got hard and he found out they're all going to die or possibly die, Jesus is going to die, he went to what he really found joy in. What was that? In money and things in the material world. 
He didn't find his joy in Jesus. At the very end, he didn't fight for joy in Jesus. You know why? He never had it. And so he gave up and killed himself. So our joy must be found in Jesus. And, and our joy now reflects the joy we will have in the future. And then in verse 14, we see joy is found in the presence of Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 14 is connected to verse 13 to the imperative of rejoicing in verse 13 because the next imperative isn't until verse 15. So, so verse 14 goes with verse 13. So in verse 14, we see here Peter doubling down on where we're to find our joy, and that's in Jesus Christ. He teaches here that those who are insulted for the name of Christ, those who suffer because they are associated with Christ, are actually blessed. When someone, when someone insults you or curses you, they're condemning you, right? They're, they're, they're cursing you. They're putting you down. But actually, what he's saying is Jesus actually, in those times, blesses you. The opposite actually takes place from Jesus. And why is that? Well, he says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 11. The beginning of, um, of December, we taught on this and used this text. Remember, this is a text about Jesus, the Messiah. In Isaiah 11, it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus came into this world and the spirit of God was upon him. He was empowered by the spirit. When he suffered, he endured because the spirit of God was within him. When he died on the cross, the spirit of God uh, was with him. He was resurrected by the spirit of God. He went back to heaven and then he sent that same spirit to this earth to be with us. So we have the spirit of glory and of God who rests upon us. So in, in one sense, you could say Jesus is with us through his Holy Spirit. And so that's what he's saying here. He's saying that we have this, this, supernatural, this supernatural joy because Jesus Christ is with us. The same spirit who enabled Jesus to have joy in his suffering is the same spirit who's with us to give us grace to endure and find our joy in him. So that means then that our joy is supernatural. This is something that you can't generate on your own. You have to go to the Lord for this joy. In the midst of the suffering, there's joy found in Christ because he's with us and he's blessing us. And reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when other people insult you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so we find our joy in Jesus Christ. What's the normal for you? What do you consider normal? Well, I hope through this message that you will, as a Christian, adjust your thinking. Consider fiery trials are a normal part of life. God is working in my life to refine my faith, to draw me closer to him. Also, Christian normal is we find our joy in Jesus Christ. If you're without Christ, what I'm saying might not make much sense. You might be listening here, or maybe you're inside here, and you're thinking, That's, this sounds all kind of crazy. And I would say it this way, it's because you don't know the joy of the Savior. I heard a story of a pastor once who was attending a seminary, and the seminary believed in liberal theology, which is um, liberal theology, not like political liberal, but like, political, but like a religious liberal. In other words, they don't believe the Bible is the word of God. And this pastor had, was sitting in the back and he had his lunch and he was eating his lunch there. Was this guy was speaking up there. And this guy was up there talking about how Jesus wasn't real. You know, he was, just, he was just a story that was told. And so this guy was speaking about how Jesus wasn't, wasn't someone that we should really consider as a real historical figure. And so this pastor was in the back and he stood up when it was time for questions. And he asked the speaker, he said, hey, he took out an apple. He says, is this apple, is it sweet or is it sour? And that guy on the podium says, well, I don't know. I'm, I don't, don't have the apple. You're the one eating the apple. And he said, he lifted up and he said, you know what? You've never tasted of my Jesus. And the interesting thing about that story is he's saying this. He's saying, listen, you don't know what the apple's like because you've actually never experienced it. And you might, you might listen to what I'm preaching. You might say, I don't, that sounds really strange. And I would say it's probably because you haven't tasted of my Jesus, our Jesus. And so if you're without Christ in here, he came 
this world to save you from your biggest problem. And it's not a government. It's not politics. It's not the problems of your family life. It's actually the problem of sin. And sin will cause you the greatest problem at all, and that is separation from God forever in hell. And Jesus came to take that punishment for you because he loves you and he wants to save you. And he calls on you to renounce yourself, your sin, and trust in him as your Savior and Lord. And for us, church, I hope this is encouraging to us. I hope that you don't see this as a doomsday message. I <laughs> hope you see it as actually God is doing something special in our church, in our country. And I hope you will trust the Lord during this time. Let's pray. As I go to prayer here, I hope that you in your heart, I invite you in your heart to pray to the Lord. If the Lord's working in your heart in some way, would you just cry out to him in your heart? And he can hear you if you're a believer. You can, he can hear you by the power of his Holy Spirit. So I encourage you to, to cry out in prayer to him as I pray out loud to the Lord. Father, we come to you as one in whom we trust that you are the sovereign one who has given us life and breath. You have put us into really what is now a, an amazing context, amazing country. The comforts we have could never be imagined by many people through centuries. But we're also in a time where we face difficulties and potentially more. So I pray, there's a number of things we could pray about. I pray for our church. I pray for our people. I pray for our children, grandchildren. Lord, I pray that you will help them to wake up to spiritual realities so they can stand strong for Christ in faith. I pray for a revival in our church, in our country. I pray that suffering will cause people to wake up to true spiritual reality and they'll turn to you. And I pray that you'll strengthen us. I pray we'll find our joy in you. Lord, it's so difficult. We have to fight every day because there's so many temptations. There's so many things calling our name but Lord, you call us to yourself. So may, may we as a church come to you in prayer. May we, may we be ministered to you by your word as you speak to us, we pray. I pray for those who are at home, some are sick and they really wanna be here. I pray you'll heal them. I pray you'll, you'll have mercy upon their bodies, touch them so they can come back here and worship with us. Some who are afraid, Lord, I pray that you'll give them strength and faith in their heart to be able to gather once again. And Lord, I pray that you'll make this church, Lighthouse Bible Church, into a beautiful bride that can be presented before you someday. We can be presented before you as holy without blame, not because of our own self, but because of the righteousness and work of Jesus Christ in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, I'm gonna ask the musicians to come up. We're gonna sing one last song, and it's Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus.